Hello and welcome to Girls That Invest. Today we are joined by Stephanie Chu, investor at the fintech VC strategy of Portage, a global fintech and financial services investment platform and the board of directors at Perla. And if that sounds like a very impressive title, it is because it absolutely is. Stephanie works with over $3 billion in assets in her venture capital. She backs ambitious founders who want to change financial services globally, and she runs the investment team in North America. If that's not enough, before this, she built and launched a leading digital advice platform, Canada, which serves over 2 million Canadians. Stephanie has a very unique lens in the venture capital world, and so we were very excited to have the privilege of chatting with her today about her money mindset, how she got into the VC world, her views on how people around her that have access to you know some of the best financial services still don't get to chat about personal finance amongst their friends. We talk about a lot of theories when it comes to investing, and more importantly, her investments, what green flag she looks for, what red flag she looks out for, and anything to do with making money. Now, before we dive into today's episode, I do want to mention it is a lot of high level content. There's a lot of jargon words involved. So if you do start to feel a little bit out of your depth, go back and listen to our Venture Capital 101 episode and then jump back in and you might feel a little bit more comfortable. All right, let's get into the show. Now, before we begin, we want to take a moment to thank our season sponsor for powering this week's episode. Are you ready to take control of your financial future and you don't know where to begin? Meet Perla, the Aussie investing platform that makes it easy for anyone to invest in the stock market and build a sensible, diversified portfolio. With Perla, you can start investing with as little as $5. Perla's unique community-driven experience guides you through the process of selecting your investment goals, creating a portfolio tailored to your needs and tracking your progress over time. One of the things that we love most about Perla is their commitment to financial education. Perla commits to empowering investors through tools like template portfolios with access to easier investing and supportive community connections. Perla also offers great insight and data that help pave the way for equitable investing. Their research finds women are investing more of their income than men and more women invest on their platform than men. Perla also walks the walk with open pay transparency to help facilitate open conversations about wage, roles and opportunities within the financial industry. If you're feeling overwhelmed by all the options, Perla's platform is intuitive and easy to use with powerful tools that give you control over your investments. You can track your portfolio's performance, set up automatic investments and even invite friends and family to invest alongside you. Don't wait to start building your financial future. Check out Perla.com today and start investing in your goals. Hello, Steph. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are very, very honored to have you all the way from the other side of the world right now. How has your week been? The week has been actually a little bit crazy, but thank you for having me on. We actually hosted our our AGM, which is our annual general meeting for our platform this week in Montreal. So I've been on the road. Super fun to get to see all of our LPs in person, which we haven't done for a few years because of COVID. A few years. That's a decent amount of time. It's been three years, I think, since we hosted everybody in the same place, in the same room. So it was a really nice treat to get to 
both see members of my own team in person, but also our extended big ecosystem of investors that we're lucky to have. That is so interesting. Would you say that when you were younger and let's say we were like, it was five-year-old Steph that was talking to us right now, would she be seeing herself doing what you're doing right now, would she be like, absolutely, I'm going to go into VC. Like I'm going to host meetings with LPs, limited partners in different parts of the world. Like, was that always the plan with you? Definitely not. My path into venture was a really, I would say a pretty circuitous one. I'm not actually sure that little five-year-old Steph and honestly 15-year-old Steph and maybe not even 25-year-old Steph really understood what venture was. I think I had a broad sense that investing might be an area that I would be interested in, but certainly not something that I ever really considered that I would do in my career. I got into venture really through an interest in fintech and financial services, which I I kind of honestly fell into. So my first job out of college was at a kind of fintech payments-y startup that didn't end up working out. I then got a quote-unquote real job at a consulting firm working at BCG for a number of years. And I really fell into financial services work because I wanted to be in cities. And the other kind of work that you could do, which was the cool, sexy work that other people wanted to do, was was consumer and retail. And that stuff was cool, but it meant you needed to be somewhere that I would have considered kind of in the middle of nowhere. And because I wanted to be in cities, the main set of industries in cities that is guaranteed to be in cities for a lot of the time is financial services. And so I spent a number of years working across banking, across wealth management. I then found myself in a kind of really interesting spot of getting to launch and roll out and work with an, an awesome team to build what would become a kind of digital advice platform for a large, for a really large bank. And I spent almost a couple of years building and launching that. So I had built, unbeknownst to me, kind of by accident, a almost 15-year career working across financial services, across many different like parts of it. When I met my partners now at Portage, we really didn't know what Portage was going to be. We had some inkling that we were definitely going to invest, but there was, but really it was born out of the thesis that we all shared that financial services innovation has been dramatically underinvested globally. And it requires a specific kind of almost esoteric knowledge, which is to a discussion that I'm sure we're going to have later, which is almost too bad in some ways. And you kind of need a, there's a different set of jargon. It's super regulated. The way that you think about how balance sheets and income statements work in financial services is different than a lot of other sectors. So it kind of does require a little bit of expertise. And so the way I fell into venture was through the lens of a 
an expertise and a specialization in financial services and in fintech. And that's what has kind of led me here today. And we saw this market opportunity to bring, to be vertical specific investors in the ecosystem. And we felt like if you look over time at venture dollars, financial services, even though it represents up to anywhere between 10 and 20% of GDP, we're not getting the commensurate kind of like one fifth of venture dollars. And that like actually doesn't really make sense. And it kind of tells you, it kind of tells you a lot about the state of innovation in financial services. It's been like the thing that's been left behind where you look at your phone and it's kind of the consumer experiences that you have in consumer and retail and in consumer internet are just better. And I think there's a lot of different reasons for that, but one of them is, I think, underinvestment by large incumbents, underinvestment in the ecosystem. That has clearly changed in the past decade that I started investing, and we can talk a little bit about that. But when we started Portage now, seven years ago in 2016, we saw this market opportunity. So that is quite a journey. We have a lot of people that will like ask in and go, I'm really interested, Sim, about venture capital. I'm really interested in like how to get into venture, but I have no idea where to begin. Is there a certain like the pathway that you've described where you've said you've almost fallen into it, but I think you've also like had very great career trajectories and you've obviously made really great decisions to get to where you are. Is there like a certain degree that someone needs to do or they have to go into consulting for a few years and like do the hard yards and then try and jump into VC? Is there any, I guess, advice that you have for someone that goes, I'm so interested, but I have no idea where to begin? Like if you were talking to your younger self. I think there is no quote unquote typical path. Well, that's actually not quite true. There is a (laughs) typical path, I would say, but there's really two typical paths, mm-hmm. I would say. The first path into venture is do banking or consulting or a job at a large tech company or honestly, like a high growth company of some sort, and then like try to find a job in venture. And there <laughs> unfortunately isn't really like a hiring. Other than some of the top largest venture funds that do have analyst programs, Mm -hmm. there isn't really, for the most part, like the 90, the rest of the 90% of the hundreds of venture firms out there, there isn't really a clear recruiting process. It's one in, one out, small, generally very small teams, very bespoke. And so you can kind of, Like that is one path Mm -hmm. to getting into, I guess, a larger, to one of the larger kind of buy side venture firms out there. And, but that's definitely not the only path. And I think a lot of people find their way into venture via having angel invested, having worked in tech, having then angel invested, and then building their own kind of personal investment track record over time. And obviously, the the harder part about that is that it requires capital. So typically, mm-hmm. what you see is people who have had some success in their career mm-hmm. and or 
and exit have worked in tech and have been lucky enough to be a part of some kind of exit and or who have a who've made capital in some other way then moving into investing either by investing starting by investing their own capital or raising capital via their own funds and that operator turned investor or entrepreneur turned investor has been definitely in vogue over the past decade or so there are a lot of kind of new venture models like solo GPs that have sprung up in market to form that. But unlike consulting recruiting, unlike investment banking recruiting, unlike tech recruiting, I would say venture is a very bespoke... And unlike private equity recruiting and other kinds of investing, venture, I would say, is maybe the most diverse and the most bespoke in terms of recruiting processes. So you really just, if I were to provide advice to people, it would be one, like you need to show a demonstrated interest in tech because that's really what you're going to be investing (laughs) in. Two, like a lot of the job, it kind of depends on the firm that you join. Joining a late stage venture fund is extremely different than joining an early stage venture fund. So really understand like why is it that you want to join venture or be a VC? Like what is it that motivates you? And that will help narrow your search. If you want to join a late stage venture fund, a traditional investing background in any other buy side asset class could be helpful. Typically, that means tech, investment banking, growth equity, private equity in tech could all be entrees into a pivot into venture on the growth side and the late stage side. If you want to be an early stage VC, I would say really it's about building deep networks into entrepreneurial communities. And you can do that by investing on your own. You can do that by being active in your local startup community. But I would say that's one angle. Another angle, which is what I really used, is develop an expertise on a specific area of interest, whether that is if you're technical, if it's deep tech, if it's machine learning, if you're not technical and you've got a specific operating background in consumer, I actually think being a generalist VC is really hard these days because there's so many of them. And I do think different kinds of businesses take different kinds of investors. So bringing some specific expertise to bear, I also think is is valuable. That's really helpful. I never considered even the idea of like, would you want to go to late stage or would you want to be early stage VC? Those would be so different. That's such a good point. It's so helpful. I think when you hear someone that's in the industry that obviously is so like deep into the work. Another thing that I don't think our listeners maybe know about you, which is personally one of my favorite parts of your story you're still studying you're still learning you're you're always by the sounds of it like a lifelong learner and you're actually in the middle of a thesis about wealth tech and consumer fintech I would love to hear more about that and I think our listeners would really enjoy hearing the why behind it because you kind of explained it earlier to me and I I just actually think it's so beautiful you're like eyes light up when you talk about it 
Yeah. Look, I'm a very thematically driven investor. I always have been. Because we are narrow and focused on fintech as what we do, I have the luxury of being able to see a lot of different kinds of businesses. And a lot of my sourcing comes from a thematic focus on different theses that change over time. And by the way, they evolve. So when I invest in a company, it clearly is another data point into a thesis that is almost evergreen in in some cases. And I've been lucky enough to be have been involved in consumer fintech and in wealth tech. Some of my very first investments were in this space. The, the business that I helped build before I got into investing was also in this space. And I'm like hugely passionate about consumer fintech because I really think like growing up, so if if we step all the way back for a minute, kind of growing up, my experience was my parents immigrated to Canada. I grew up in Toronto. I was very fortunate and lucky to have the benefit of, of that. We didn't really talk about money much. It was kind of only in my 20s that I started to realize that the less you know about your financial life, Financial services is almost like purposefully, honestly, obscure (laughs) in some ways. Like it feels both hard to understand. It feels taboo, which I understand is kind of like the, it's kind of why I love your podcast and the mission of what you guys are doing. And I see that amongst my friends. I see that in, even amongst like really educated people who aren't, like talking about money is not something that you necessarily do with your friends. It's not something that you necessarily do with your family. It can be a source of friction. It often is a source of stress for most people. And I think the worst thing about this for me has always been that the consumers that know the least pay the most when they often can't afford to do so. And so I have been honestly obsessed for the past decade with the idea that you can use technology in many different ways to democratize access to financial services products to make this world more accessible, more transparent, fairer for everybody. And I think it, it's really a mission that has been at the cornerstone of a lot of my investing. One of our fund's very first investments is in a company called Simple which you can tell just by the name what its mission is, which is to decomplexify, to really simplify at at the end of the day, what investing means, which I think is the number one way that people, everybody should be investing. It's the number one way to build wealth. But banks, incumbents, wealth managers are incentivized to keep it as complex as possible so that they can continue to charge high, almost extortionate fees for products that honestly, if it were up to me, would probably just be free because they're fundamental to building wealth and accumulating wealth over time. And those who have it already are much better positioned to continue to grow their wealth. And so Wealth Simple was kind of our first foray into the idea that you could democratize access to investing products through a simple, almost robo-type investment 
product, like they're called robo advisors at the time. This was kind of the first generation of wealth tech. I hate that term <laughs> because it's not a like it, it really dehumanizes what they do. I think you can get the same quality of, of advice from an app that you would from a human. But I've also invested in other things. One of my second investments or out of the second fund, one of our first investments out of our second fund was in a company called Albert. They they use technology to connect you to a real human who can help you manage your money and invest. That's a US-based company. And that's just been an extension of the same thesis, mm-hmm. which is people want simple ways to manage their money whether or not they need a human, I think there's a, a huge set of the population that that wants to talk to somebody to do this. There's a whole other set of the population that doesn't. And I think it's been probably my most trafficked thesis is the idea that by using technology, you can remove cost and make fairer, cheaper, better financial products that are also good for consumers. Because at the end of the day, we can get more into this, but like there is a like an investing philosophy that actually makes sense for people, but it, and it is like diversification and it is like pretty well understood portfolio theory that we should be able to provide basically for free or for very cheap to most people. What would you say has been the most surprising finding um, through your research so far? I think one of the most surprising things for me actually was the clear gender gap that we've seen in investing across men and women. Women are disproportionately less likely to invest than men. They don't invest in the market at the same rate. They don't invest their retirement savings at the same rate. They take less risk. Some of this I think is actually somewhat positive. But like the numbers in the US, there was just recently a study that I was reading in the US, like less than 50% of women kind of like don't feel confident investing at all. And I think that number is significantly lower than, than men, even though we're starting to get to a place where there are now at least entering the workforce, the same number of men and women. Women just invest less on an aggregate basis. And they actually like, and and there's lots of different things behind this, but a lot of it actually is just confidence. Mm -hmm. When it comes to confidence, do you think that there are things that we can do to make it more easier for women to start investing, not just, you know, for their personal finance, but also investing as angel investors. I I know a lot of women uh, around me that are probably at that stage where they can and should be starting or probably ready to even go into venture, but there's always a level of maybe I'm not meant to be here or maybe I should go back and study more or maybe there should be like three other things I need to tick off my list before I can either invest for myself be an angel investor or in venture, what do you have to say to those women? I think there's different answers to that question. So the first thing that I would say is it's totally fine. If you're really excited about angel investing, it is like a very fun thing to do. I would say like the cornerstone of like where you should invest your money 
really ought to be in a diversified portfolio of stuff. And so if you want to hive off a small portion of your portfolio to do things that are riskier, so if 90% of your portfolio is in equities and fixed income and 10% of your portfolio is in like angel investing and higher risk single stock names, that absolutely makes sense. But it's all about managing your risk appropriately and in having proper asset allocation. So I probably would not advocate for putting your entire net worth into an angel investing track record, just given the level of risk that that entails. For those interested in angel investing, I would say one piece of advice that I would give is you need to have a large portfolio. So in order for this to make sense, because you will have a lot of zeros. And so that actually kind of raises the bar on angel investing to begin with, because it increases the amount of capital that you need to actually put into it in order to make a return. So I typically tell people that if you want to have a small portfolio, it's probably going to be like, that's not really how angel investing or seed investing works. You actually need to have a large portfolio and therefore like adjust your check size to match that. But it should be in my opinion, like a small-ish minority of your net worth because it is definitely a super high-risk activity. And so it is kind of ironically against my like my ethos that I was describing earlier around... like It would be against my ethos to have more than a small pocket of capital put into a super high-risk asset class like that because angel investing is like on the spectrum of risk, the highest risk investing that you can have. For those that are kind of thinking about investing but don't know how to get into it, I would definitely say, depending on what country you're in, like find a product that's going to get you at least some exposure to the market. You can't time the market. It's impossible to know when it's going to go up and down you need to just have like money in it and take a long-term time horizon and a long-term mindset to it. And so there is totally value to having a small amount of money to like play around with meme stocks if that's what you want to do. I would not put your total net worth in it. And I would seek out alternatives like a Wealth Simple, like an Albert, like a Perler, where you can actually dip a toe into investing and have someone really do it for you. I think really what makes it confusing and like the question that I get all the time is like, where do I start? How do I begin? What do I know what's good and bad to buy? And the truth is like, it's not clear to me that unless you are a full-time investor and your job is to work at a hedge fund as a PM or an asset manager, that you will be able to find alpha in the market better than anybody else. But If you look over time, all the studies would show that having money in the market over time and taking a long-term time horizon is the way to accumulate and build wealth. And it's really not that complicated if you treat it like a dead simple kind of set it and forget it process. And that's part of the reason I'm a huge fan of what Perler's motto, like boring investing for the long term, is really my personal investment philosophy as well. And ultimately, like, do I love 
other kinds of technology that make it easier to invest, yes. Like I think that there are some, like I have no problem with a small, again, amount of money in Robinhood and or in some other single stocks. But I think the majority of people really just need to take a step forward to building wealth. And it's boring and safe, but actually that's how you accumulate wealth at the end of the day. And if you look at studies over the last little while, those who trade, and like I can see this in the data in my own companies, like those who trade singles, and a few of my companies offer single stock trading as well. And if those who come in through the single stock trading funnel, typically make a few trades, typically lose money, and then typically stop investing. And so I'm an advocate really of the kind of dead, simple, boring approach. It's always quite funny to me because the dead, simple, boring approach, like it works. And I think we're almost like, why is this so easy? There has to be more to it. This is not exciting enough. But on the topic of finding investments and going down that route, I'm quite interested in your investing journey because you've invested in Wealthsimple, you've invested in Perla. For those that might not be aware, Wealthsimple is actually a very great and very like well-established broker in Canada and Perla is huge in Australia and New Zealand and, and this side of the world. So you've done like I mean, you know this, but you've done really well and you've chosen some really great brands before they became huge, successful brands. So you probably get this question a lot, but how do you know when something is a good investment? Are you someone that goes off a certain checklist or is it a lot of different things plus your you know, experience over time and a gut feeling? How does it work for you? Totally depends on the stage. So early on in the investment life cycle, I think it's super important. Like the most important thing is the team. So at Seed, we're typically looking for people that are have some unfair advantage that they bring to the equation. So does that mean they have run a similar business before? Are they mission aligned or driven in some way? Like what is their founding story and what makes them uniquely suited to actually run the company that we're looking at? So that's one. I would say as you move from early stage to late stage, you try to flip more cards, so to speak. So then you're looking for are there early signs of customer traction and customer love? Then you're looking at is there a way to actually grow the company and the revenue base? So if you have early signs of customer traction, can you actually scale that into a big business? And then as you move further and further across stages, and and we're a multi-stage fund. And so as you move across stages, you have more and more data points of actual data to check your initial hypothesis. For us, investing always starts with a thesis. It starts with a belief in a specific space and or a problem that needs to be solved that we believe has not yet been solved. And then we're looking for the best team to solve that problem. And then from there, there are specific metrics that you can look like look at, like product engagement metrics, revenue metrics, et cetera, to judge whether the business actually is doing something to solve the problem. And that's the kind of 
quote unquote, elusive product market fit. When it came to Perla, what was something that you remember that really stood out to you? Was it the team or was it the fact that, I mean, obviously the mission was really aligned. I guess it was a while ago, but can you recall something that made you go, oh yeah, I see why we're going to work with them? For Perler, it is really interesting. In investing, we really saw two different modes that we had actually invested in ourselves. One was the like fully automated investing approach. The other side of the equation was the fully self-directed investing approach, which some of our portfolio companies have put into their product. So like single stock trading, but we really hadn't seen much in between. And I believe that there, and I kind of alluded to this already in my own personal investing philosophy, but I think you kind of, there's a lot of room in between those two ends of the spectrum to move. And I actually believe that investors want some semblance of control. And so Perler for me was the really interesting in between of sensible investing, which is the vast majority of your capital is deployed in stuff that is quote unquote boring and long-term and in passive indexes, but it still gives you some amount of actual control. I also loved the focus on building community and building and providing kind of like real confidence building education. So it, it wasn't about kind of the meme stock rhetoric of, of like being competitive or copying. It was about like, how do we actually create a community that encourages people to accumulate wealth in a sensible way? Hence the, the kind of invest boring for the long-term slogan. And, and I really think we hadn't seen the combination of what I would describe as kind of automated, but also with some semblance of real choice. And so the ability to do both was the glimmer of something new that I hadn't quite seen. And that's definitely what drove, I think, thematically, the reason we invested in Perler. And when it comes to investments, if someone's listening at home and going, okay, I mean, obviously I'm not at the stage to run a, a VC, but when it comes to the smaller investments I'm making, those green flags that you've spoken about, things like management, things like what is their unique proposition, what do they bring that's that's different? On the flip side, what are the red flags, if you could give three, for example, that you look at when it comes to investments and you go, right, if that occurs, I would never, you know, go near that. Or are there any? Yeah, it's interesting. Like, first of all, I would say if you are angel investing, the one thing that I would say is you need to see a lot of deals. And so it's through seeing a lot of deals that you can build intuition around what makes sense and what doesn't. And that just takes time. And I would say, I, I know this isn't answering your question. I will get to that in a second. But the the other thing that I would say is invest in people and things that you know, because that's going to be your best bet in finding the quote unquote red flags. Like I know what the red flags are for fintech and, and they're very specific. Like it's hard to really generalize what they are. I think one, I never invest in anything that is not customer aligned. And perfect example of this is a lot of trading apps are actually aligned to make you trade more. 
And like, there's nothing wrong with that. And everybody should have the ability to do that if you want to do that. And and I actually think there's some benefit to it because it involves people in the market and it gets them investing and people want to hear and understand the stories behind what they invested in and they want to invest behind brands that they know and they like. I have no issue with that. I do have an issue where there's almost been for some companies like a gamification of this and almost an encouragement of trading in a, in a way that is not responsible. So I never invest in things that I feel like are somehow not setting up a customer for long-term financial success because I actually don't think those are good sustainable businesses because if you log in your portfolio and you're down a bunch of money from having invested in options and or taking margin, you're not going to want to invest anymore. And you're not going to have dollars to invest anymore. And so I think it's in many cases, it's not a good long-term business model at the end of the day. And so in fintech, that's definitely one thing that I look that I think is a red flag. I think the second is, I think a lot about customer engagement and customer acquisition costs on the consumer side. So that means for me, I'm spending a lot of time thinking about, I'm looking for products that have high referral engagement. I think like a clear red flag for me is payback periods. So a a customer acquisition cost that is too high and therefore won't pay back in a short amount of time and requires a significant amount of upfront marketing spend that's another kind of clear red flag. And then I would say a third for me is, I don't want to just provide the inverse of all the (laughs) other things, but like it really is about the team at the end of the day. If I don't feel like the management team is there to build like a really, well, actually, sorry, let me say this another way, which is I'm looking for like big markets that I believe in venture can scale to be billion dollar businesses at the end of the day. And that is, if it's not a big enough market for me to make a venture return, it's hard for me to make an investment. And when you say venture return, for those that may be not so familiar with that, what do you mean? Is that like a certain percentage return or is that just sort of saying like you're putting in so much money, you need at least a bit of a ROI for that to make sense? So venture is like the bar for venture is very high because basically how the model works is you have a portfolio of investments. Unlike other asset classes, you expect many of your investments will fail. And so it's a power law structure where very few of your investments, typically the top 10%, not even the top 30% of your investments, will generate all of your returns. And so that means those, if you're investing in a portfolio of 20 companies, that means probably three to five of them are going to generate all of your returns. And you can assume that everything else is going to be a zero. And so you, as a VC, the goal is you're really trying to find the two, three, four unicorns in your portfolio that are really going to return it 
And that means they need to be tackling big markets. And that, I think, is one of the big disconnects that we see now when I meet entrepreneurs is every dollar needs to be put into a company that I believe could potentially return my entire fund. And that's a very different mentality of investing than other asset classes where if you're investing in private equity or if you're investing in a public portfolio, you're never really expecting some of your portfolio companies to be worth nothing. And so that is sometimes, I think, a disconnect. And and part of the reason I encourage people to really think about whether or not they want to pursue a venture-backed company versus other kinds of non-dilutive funding and or a bootstrap company. Because when you take venture dollars, it means you need to provide <laughs> venture returns. And that means a very different thing than building a sustainable business. You could build a really amazing cash flow positive business for yourself that is not a venture-fundable business. I think over the past five years, there's been a real... like All the stories that you read about are like high growth tech companies. So everybody wants to be a venture funded business, but that's not necessarily the best path for everyone. That makes a lot of sense. I'm glad that you've mentioned that because I remember I was at an event the other day and it was for a VC and I was kind of looking around and I was like, none of their companies have like done really well. Like how are they affording all of this? Like this is such a grand event. And then I realized that they were a early seed investor in Canva. And I was like, oh, it just takes one. It just takes one really good investment. Yes, it does take one really good investment, but to find that one really good investment, you have to make a lot of other investments. And it's part of the reason I actually started when I talked about the portfolio theory and and portfolio approach. If you do want to have your own angel investing portfolio, I really think it needs to be, it really needs to be super diversified because you can get extremely lucky and have your one investment be Canva, but more likely than not, it's not going to be that. (laughs) And so again, like a lot of these are lessons to take in other parts of your investing life as well, but you really ought to have a diversified portfolio. Absolutely. Now we're going to go into the quick fire round, Steph. I've learned so much from you and I know our listeners are so lucky to have you hear sharing all these nuggets of gold, what would you say is the best investment you've made? I'm sure you hate this question. (laughs) I definitely hate this question because it's like choosing one of your favorite children. Everyone has a favorite child. You know what? I'm going to take a total cop-out answer here (laughs) and say the best investment that I've made is in myself. Like I actually think people, like this comes down to like, this idea, like the best investment you can make is to invest at all. Mm -hmm. And it comes down to what we were talking about, like around confidence and not knowing where to start. I do think that's the very first thing that I would do is just make, like invest in yourself, invest in learning, and then honestly invest in the market. Having a dollar in the market in an index is better than having no investments at all. So like, I recognize that that's a cough out answer, but that's, that's what I have for you. No, you'll be very surprised. A lot of people answer that. It, it makes sense. I mean, you, you couldn't have done what you had without investing in yourself. And to say the best investment is to invest at all, like that gave me goosebumps. I'm, I've written that one down for myself. On the topic of investing in yourself, 
Second question, what has been your favorite book that has helped you on your VC journey? I don't really read many business books, honestly, because my life is already full of different businesses. But I would say one book that I'm reading or or I recently read that I really enjoyed was a book called Chip Wars by Chris Miller. It's really fascinating book about semiconductors and chips, which are going to be really be the new oil to power the technology for the next kind of hundred years. And they're in everything that we do, your computers, your phones, they're in all of the appliances, they're in cars, and just understanding the geopolitical ramifications of what that actually means in a world in which we've got a super global supply chain, but a lot of the chip manufacturing know-how is pretty concentrated in a small set of countries is really fascinating. And so I definitely recommend it as a read to others. Oh, that's actually a good one. I'm putting that down in my Goodreads. And last quickfire question, do you have a golden nugget piece of advice that you got growing up when it comes to money that you still use today? I mean, I would say the one thing that I still think a lot about is I really try to keep a low personal burn rate because... It just gives you so much more flexibility in your life and allows you to make decisions for yourself. It just buys you flexibility and freedom. And so that's a piece of advice that I got pretty early and and something that my parents definitely modeled and, and something that has really stuck with me over life. Do you mean so like not spending as much so that if things need to move around or you need to change, you're not going well? I need to spend like 80,000 a month and and now I can't. That's right. So I think a lot of people and and this is totally natural and the typical thing that people do is as their income increases, so do their expenses. And I think if you can figure out a way to keep your burn rate low even as your income increases, you just have so much more flexibility to invest in yourself in a future date, to invest in other things. And I think that's one thing that I've been pretty cognizant about. Steph, thank you so much for joining us today. We have learned so many things. I feel like even though this is one of our longer episodes, I feel like we could keep going and I wish there was a part two to this. We have been able to take so much from you know your journey into the VC world about your thesis, about your views and and thoughts around how the world can be a better place thanks to fintech and some of your green and red flags when it comes to investing thank you for being so generous with your time we really appreciate it and everyone at girls invest has just been such a champion of, of the work that you're doing well thank you so much for having me on and and i really love as i said up front the mission of what you guys are doing. I think we need to have more conversations about money and more conversations about investing. So, Oh, thank you. Thanks for being part of that. And as always, to finish off with our disclaimer, Girls That Invest does not provide personalized investing advice for your individual needs. We are not financial advisors. The advice from Girls That Invest exists for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon to make an investment or financial decision. Advice from Girls That Invest is general in nature and does not consider individual circumstances. Always do your research and please use your due diligence.